Hello, my name is Elle Leighton. I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues at Dickinson College. Today, I'm interviewing Maisha Cherry about her book, The Case for Rage, Why Anger is Essential to Anti-Racist Struggle. Thank you so much for sitting down with me for this conversation, and we're very excited about your talk tonight. So the first question that I have is about your book. Um, so in the introduction of your book, you talk about the similarities of the relationship between the anger you express, uh, expressed at women's ex oppression and the rage expressed towards racial oppression, but yet you clarify there's also dissimilarities as well, and you state uh, anger in the context of racial oppression should then be uh, discussed explicitly and with specificity. So why was it important for you to make that distinction? Yeah, so I'm a you know African-American philosopher that's also a woman and also very interested in emotions. And when I began to do, uh, I guess you could say philosophical research, in which I wanted to go to philosophical sources to see what they had to say about, about anger, particularly in a context of oppression, most of what I was finding was, you know, white feminists suggesting that anger is useful in the fight against, against gender oppression. And there were a lot of, you know, um, uh, you know white feminists uh, writing about anger and, and oppression. And, um, I'm grateful for that literature. Now, just to give you some contours, when we think about the philosophers who are writing, um, there are like about 13,000 philosophers in the U.S. Almost half of them are, are women, um, but only about 1% of them are African-American. And they're still, you know, trying to get African-Americans in graduate school and philosophy programs. So you can just imagine that um, the literature that I was consulting, I mean, it kind of represented the field. Right. Um, um, but so, I, you know, I'm reading this, 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 this literature. Um, I'm learning a lot from the literature. But I just felt as a, as a new voice, as an African-American, I felt that I could, I could say something about anger in the context of, of racial oppression um, that wasn't being said primarily because there just wasn't black folk um, philosophers who are, were specifically writing about anger, specifically because they were just not a lot, a lot, a lot of us. Um, they were writing about oppression, but not necessarily anger. So I learned a lot about the, the feminist literature, um, but I felt that I wanted to speak, I wanted to speak because I wasn't reading anything that was speaking directly to those particular issues. I just felt that my position in society, and not only that, um, the things that I was reading outside of philosophy could kind of illuminate looking at anger in the context of racial oppression from a philosophical perspective. So I felt that that was my, my contribution, something that I, that, I, that I wanted to do. And I just think that, you know, it's important that I think, you know, there's a category of oppression, but not all oppression looks the same. Um, not all responses to oppression look the same. Um, and so I, I just felt like not to divide and conquer, but to illuminate, um, you know, anger in the context of racial oppression and, and, and what that's able to say on behalf of the oppressed, what it's able to say. Um, to the oppressor that's distinct from the gender context. Um, and um, I'm just hoping that, that I made a contribution. I gave you like a long answer, no, no. <laughs> like something very specific. That's but that's just to say that I think, I think it's important for us. Diversity is good. I think allyship is good. Um, but I'm just from the tradition of Audre Lorde about, you know, listen, there's a politics of difference. Um, that we're, we're different and we need, to, we need to admire those differences. Um, and not be afraid of those, those differences. 
And I think the more that we're able to learn from each other and not um, immediately suggest that because we're people of color or because we are a minority, we are, we're all oppressed in the same kind of way that's fight for justice. No, let's talk about how it's distinct, um, how it's different. And that difference shouldn't be that thing that divides us. It should illuminate um, oppression in general that allow all of us to unite to do something about it. The case words that you're making is Lordian rage. Um, and the quote you used from Audre Lorde, I found very compelling. Freedom is not exclusive, it is inclusive. So in the fight to make distinctions among marginalized groups um, between us and between unmarginalized groups using Lordian rage, how do we build empathy and all people to care about issues that affect marginalized groups in which they are not a part of? Yeah, I think, I think empathy is important. Um, you know, particularly if you think about empathy is, you know, being able to imagine yourself in the shoes of others as if you were them. Um, and so empathy is indeed an imaginative kind of uh, exercise, um, but it's also an emotive exercise because if you're imagining yourself in the shoes of someone else and that person is starving, <laughs> Um, then you're able to feel compassion as a result of that, right? Because you're trying to, you know, it's a, it's a emotive kind of kind of response that you have. So I think that that empathy, I, I think empathy is important. I think the only way that you can get to the imaginative and the emotive kind of experience that comes with empathy is you got to learn about people's experiences. You got to be willing to listen to people's experiences. And particularly if you're not part of that particular group, that learning is a life, kind of like a, it, it take, take a lifetime. So I think when it goes back to the difference, um, I think we do ourselves a disservice, and this is something that, you know, that Adjula talks about a lot. Um, and it goes back to what I previously stated by suggesting that we're all the same because we're oppressed. That's not necessarily the case. And I think, I think those recognizing those differences allow us um, gives us the tools to fight against that particular that particular oppression. Um, but I think that 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 learning is very important, and you don't learn from a distance. <laughs> um, you learn by being in fellowship, in community, in solidarity uh, with people who are different from you. Um, you also do your homework, yes. so you don't put all the epistemic burden on them. You know, you're reading as well as well, but you're listening. You're listening. You're listening, and that's how you. That's how you build, build empathy. Now, here's, here's the thing. And you know, as much as I'm saying that we're all different, um, I think it's important that we recognize that even despite our differences, if one person, this is Audre Lorde, if one person is still unfree because they're fighting a, a particular kind of oppression, we're delusional to think that we are actually free because oppression can clone itself, <laughs> it can mutate, and they will find a way to get us all if we don't eradicate it, mm -hmm. right? And there's no way we can be free. And that's why Adjelo said there's no way we can be free while someone else is in, in chains. So I think that allyship is important, understanding other people's experiences, having empathy for them, but also recognizing that your freedom is very much connected to theirs okay. as well. To anger, which is the focus of the book. Um, in your chapter, Painting Broad Strokes, um, you break down anger uh, and to see its multiple forms. So you explain how anger is one emotion that is traditionally not viewed with much nuance. Why do you think that anger is such a controversial emotion, uh, especially in the context of racial justice or injustice? Yeah, I think, I mean, twofold. I think the, the, the 
the way to understand the latter is to understand and kind of like just our interpersonal lives, right? So when I'm angry, it doesn't feel good. No, it feels good. Pure love feels good. <laughs> you know, we, we like watching entertainment that leaves us smiling. Not that necessarily leaves us angry, right? So if there's something about the emotion or just emotions that doesn't make us feel good that we try to resist. But also, and this goes back to the, the philosopher Adam Smith, who kind of talks about, um, in some ways, we're, we're afraid of anger, right? So when we see someone angry, you know, that can create, that, that makes us afraid, and we want that person to stop. And of course, there's like, you know, we've known stories of people who are like filled with passion, they end up murdering someone or something like that. So, you know, anger gets a bad rap because we know that a lot of bad actions that are done in the world kind of comes about uh, not because people are angry, but it comes about from angry people. And I can talk about kind of that distinction, mm-hmm. um, the distinction later. So, the, the, you know, the, it's the fear component and it's also the discomfort component. Okay. You put that in a racial context. <laughs> so let's, let's see, it becomes multi, you know, you multiply that, um, that it gets, it, it's very interesting in the racial context. So, and, and kind of, and, and I explained this in the in the chapter uh, on breaking racial rules, and I talk about how, you know, there's just been a tradition that, as much as I've just said that anger can cause discomfort and 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 and, and perhaps fear, um, and I, and a patriarchal society, and this is just historical, there are certain people who had the right to be angry, and that was white men, particularly kind of wealthy um, uh, white Protestant men, and they had a right to be angry. Because anger was kind of like, hey, I'm going to express uh, anger because I have a certain kind of status in society. And only people who have a particular status should be angry when that status is, is, is threatened. Mm-hmm. Women, oh, they don't have the right. Enslaved folk, no, they don't have the right. Mm-hmm. Poor men who don't own property, oh, they don't have a right because they don't have status. They don't have value. And I think um, that has continued. There are certain people who can get away with being angry, and we applaud that. Because, and we may not know this uh, intuitively, but I think behind that is we say, hey, that person does have a right to be angry. Look, they're rich and they're wealthy and they have this particular status in society. Now, in a racial context, black folk, Hispanic folk being angry about oppression, oh, they don't have a right to be angry. Right? They don't have the status. You know, they, you know a wrongdoing is done to them. Nah. Their, their lives are not valuable enough to kind of... Uh, for us to respect their protesting. So you, you add that to the equation, and then you can kind of add kind of racial stereotypes about, about black criminality, for example. Um, we can trust white men, white wealthy men with their anger, but we can't trust these black folk who already have a kind of a, a, a stereotypical nature of, 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 of indulging in kind of criminal behavior. Because if they get angry, then, you know, we're going to have, uh, it's going to be another Nat Turner situation. So we got to really curb it. So there's a lot of like racial stereotypes embedded and racial valuing that's embedded in addition to the fear and, 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 and the discomfort. Um, but I say, hey, forget all that. I mean, when you have anger, given those stereotypes, um, given that value, it's a way to, to push back against, against people saying that you, don't, you lack status or you lack value. And therefore, your anger is not respected because you're not respectable. Now, I have some questions kind of maybe extending some thoughts about 
popular culture moments. Okay. Uh oh. So I got that. That I can feel. I can feel like Aisha. You better be on your pop culture. <laughs> She's gonna judge you. Oh well, first one's more historical. But um, okay. <laughs> so during the civil rights movement, there were both peaceful and violent protests. Today, uh, MLK is usually remembered as the peaceful conservative leader, while Malcolm X is remembered as his radical, violent antithesis. Mm-hmm. In their own ways, both figures brought about change. Do you think that Lordian Rage has the possibility to operate within both forms of protest? I think I think so. Um, and one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is uh, kind of disentangle this whole notion that anger is always synonymous with violence. And I'm particularly talking about physical violence. Um, now, there's a there's a question that we can ask: Is physical violence ever justified? Is riots ever justified? And there's people who have addressed those 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 issues. Um, that I point out in the in, in the book make wonderful arguments for and, and, and against. And I, I, I'm not necessarily concerned with that for and against. Mm-hmm. I just want to say stop thinking that it's always synonymous without making any judgments about about if it's ever, ever justified. So I'm not saying thumbs down to violence. I'm just saying, well, I always think that anger is connected to to violence. But when I think about those particular, you know, those particular figures, I mean, let me just come to Malcolm X's defense. What rioting did he ever engage in? I mean, one of the things that he's most known for in the very beginning of his career, we've seen this even in the movie Malcolm X, about how he was able to manage a crowd of folk while he was tending to a guy who was a victim of police brutality in the jail cell. That wasn't a violent uprising. Um, and what he, most de- what he most talked about was self-defense. And who would say, I mean, we live in a society in which there's laws against making sure that you protect, you protect yourself in that, in that regard. Um, but one of the figures that I do address particularly is King. And a lot of people would like to say that, you know, King was so peaceful. And so, you know, we ought to love like Martin Luther King, get rid of this anger stuff. And I think people who say that are just ignorant about, uh, they're ignorant about King's resume as it relates to, to anger. And so two of the examples that I point out in the book is that I say, hey, you know, King has something to say about anger. But also in his personal life, he was moved by anger to engage in productive action. So, you know, his famous letter from a Birmingham jail was written in the jail cell, not out of like pure love, (laughs) but justice. He wrote it because he was angry. He was angry because it was an open letter that clergymen had uh, written in the newspapers. And his lawyer come to him, bring him the the letter. And his lawyer, who's still living today, attests to the fact of how angry King was in that jail cell because of that letter. And he wrote the letter from Birmingham jail in response to that, to that, to that letter. So it's an angry letter. Um, but it's one of the wonderful great pieces of not just public philosophy, but just classical political philosophy that came out of, out of, out of anger. And then even there's a, there's a, a speech that he gives that's in tribute to W. Du Bois. This is right after W. Du Bois' death. He basically pays tribute to W. Du Bois' life and his life of activism. And at the same time, he's speaking to young folk during this time period. And one might say that this is kind of sticking to young folk, um, you know, as the black power movement is in its infancy stage and, and young people are just fed up. And he's talking to those young people. And one might say, well, well if you're talking, you know, to, to black folk, young black kids, one of the things you want to tell them is not to be angry. And he doesn't say that. He basically says, hey, I know you're angry, but you need to do something productive with it. And it's basically a recruitment speech. Come join our movement, and I'll make sure that you do something productive with the anger. Not get rid of that anger and then come join our movement. Keep it, but use it 
And the example that he, he basically says, W. Du Bois is a great example about how to do something with your emotions. So when I think about King, and I think about a person who, you know, didn't speak out against anger, um, and he is a great figure that reminds me that, that love is compatible with anger um, because his life and his work is, is, a testament, is a testament to that. So when I think about these two figures in general, they were both angry <laughs> um, because they love black folk and they love justice. Um, and so I, I, I don't see them in tension as much as a lot of people, a lot of people do. Um, there has been a controversy over a fight that uh, garnered national attention in Alabama. Um, it's being identified in the news as either the Montgomery or Alabama Riverfront Brawl. Uh, the police believe it was not racially motivated, while those involved in the public are split. So do you think, uh, like, how should we view this um, as only an isolated incident, or is it another instance within America's long history of uh, racial violence? Uh, is this event being misinterpreted and therefore misrepresenting the reality of racism or lack of with this event? I don't know how other people view the event. Um, I'm not a black spokesperson, so I can just tell you how I viewed the event. I also am not a mind reader, nor am I a heart reader, so I don't know what people are and what they have in their heart. All I know is that there was a group of white folks who were given instructions by a security officer to kind of move and, you know, just given instructions and um, knew that they had a history of not paying attention or being obedient to that, to that instructions in, in regards to their vote. So when this one lone black person does his job, um, all these white people, um, let's say five, seven of them, end up beating them up. Another black person sees this, sees not just a fight, but I'm pretty sure that he saw another black person um, getting beat up by white people. And when you are raised in America, and you know the history of America and also the present of America, you can't help but, in his eyes, interpret that as a black man is being beaten up by white folks. How many images <laughs> in his mind came to that um, of how that has happened? Um, and he felt in his heart, even if he didn't know the person, that person as a fellow black person, that he needed to come to his rescue. And you do that. I don't know if the the violence that was initiated on behalf of those white people were racially motivated. But I know the assistance that was given to that black man was racially inspired, was an act of solidarity. Um, so it wasn't just him, but, 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 but other people. Um, so coming to the defense of someone else that looks like you, given the history of people who look like them, and actually needing the help. I mean, let's not no doubt. Actually needing the help. I mean, that's how that's how I view the the event, um, and how I and I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why quote unquote Black Twitter um, responded in the way that they did. Right? They kind of saw it, if not necessarily what the white people thought, but kind of they empathized with what the black people felt. Um, defend another, and I think one of the reasons why they cheered it on in some in some way is that there's so many times in which, I mean, I don't want to be careful with equivocating, in which there's no way that anyone would have came to his rescue. Mm -hmm. He would have been found dead somewhere. Um, so there's a lot of history in the way in which black folks responded to that, whether that's viewing it or whether being present there. So I don't want to you know, speak on behalf of, of 
the white boat owners. All I can tell you is how I saw the event, um, perhaps um, why people on how black Twitter saw the event and how people in that space it was very racially, um, through a racial, racial lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and because no one was killed and no one was hurt, mm-hmm. um, I can't help but feel um, that the person who was attacked felt loved at the end of that. I mean, in some ways, you can tell that he felt that his dignity was being taken away when you're getting beat up by, by, by people when you're just doing your job. But there's no that I think that when people come to your defense like that, who perhaps doesn't even know you and they look like you, there's no doubt that he probably felt felt love as well. And to me, that's all that's all that matters. Thank you. Uh, considering both the language and length of the case of rage, um, I thought it was a very accessible piece of philosophical and political text. So when you were first starting your research, were you prioritizing accessibility? And for this topic in particular, why is accessibility important when looking at the complex relationship between rage and racial justice? I mean, I, w- I would say that when I first do- started doing research, um, I was basically going to philosophical material, trying to get as much as I could. Um, but who I was thinking about wasn't philosophers, right? I was trying to make sense of my own kind of em- em- emotional response to injustice and people around me and people like me. And so that requires you to go outside of the text and just look at reality and look at what's around you. Um, so there's no doubt that, you know, the research happened in a kind of academia kind of context. Um, but my desire to kind of find an answer and make sense of this stuff comes out of the real, real world. So there's no doubt that, you know, as the book, you know, kind of progressed, that it was real world examples that I would, that I would use that it was real more examples that would illuminate some of the things that I was saying. Because like I said in the book, I wanted to write this to myself, a person who wanted to make sense of how they were feeling. Um, and, and, and particularly writing this to activists and, and writing it to people who felt ashamed for the way that they felt, particularly how people can make you feel that you're not virtuous or you're not disciplined because you have this kind of emotional response. And so those are the people that I was really interested in, in speaking to. Um, and they, those are people who are in the real world. Um, so unfortunately, they were present-day examples. I wished all I had was historical examples. But there was just so much mess um, and so much trauma and so much death. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of speak to that. Um, and so, um, you know, it is a a book that was intentionally written to be accessible because who I wanted to speak to were just ordinary folk. This was not an academic academic kind of exercise in which I was just trying to convince philosophers of a certain kind of thing. No, I was trying to convince people who were feeling away. I was trying to convince people who were beginning to feel ashamed and people who just wanted to know what they could do with it. I mean, those were the people that I was interested in. And I know, I knew that the examples I was pointing out in the book were examples that was making them angry they were also trying to make sense of. Um, so no doubt the book was meant to be accessible. The book was meant to be public um, and not just, not just a philosophical exercise. And, and I, hope, I hope that it is the latter or the former. <laughs> In the beginning of your book, you discuss your personal experiences with anger, uh, with racism as a child. Um, how does your personal experiences as a black woman inform the work you've done in your professional life? 
and what do you want to add to the philosophy discipline in the future from here? Yeah, I only am excited about writing something that will help me make sense of my world. And usually the topics that I feel compelled to write about always comes about through either personal experience, and that personal experience can be kind of just an interpersonal experience or a personal kind of reaction to um, a more social um, activity or, or event. Um, so I don't, I don't deny <laughs> um, my subjectivity in all of this. Um, and that's just how I have decided to approach my academic and research life. A lot of people, they want to keep them separate, and that's, that's perfectly fine. But I think the labor that I do um, in my office is me just trying to make sense of, of, of my world, my subjectivity, and hopefully, hope, hoping that it can be a benefit to, 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 other, to other folk. And I got logic on my side. You know, I'm not just musing and not merely, merely reflecting. Um, but I'm hoping, you know, it can stand under logic and, and, and philosophical scrutiny. But there's no doubt that I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm selfish to the degree that I'm trying to make sense of my subjectivity. And so who I am, the experience that, that, I had, that I've had, the things that I see in the world, um, I use philosophy to make sense of those things. And so I write out of that experience and out of that subjectivity, proudly, <laughs> without apology. To our listeners, I encourage you to visit CARFORM.org to view a live stream of Professor Cherry's talk. Once again, on behalf of CARFORM, thank you so much for sharing your time and perspective today. Thank you so much for yourself and for your wonderful questions. Thank you.